I, I have to say before I really get into the lesson how much I love you guys and appreciate you guys because I can go through the book of Lamentations <laughs> without criticism or complaint and that you receive the word of God as it is, the word of God that you desire to learn, you desire it even from the places that in my Bible are fresh, clean pages that don't get touched too often that you desire that so much. And it is my my prayer that these uh, lessons from the what I've called the forgotten books have been useful to you. They have been of great use to me, particularly uh, even in these last few weeks and seeing how the author here, this prophet, is able to describe pain and grief and to be able to move through this journey as he describes what he's enduring and the lessons that he is teaching for those who are going through the same thing as him and the messages that that presents to us as well. We come to the final poem of Lamentations, the fifth poem, uh, and it is uh, an interesting finale to this, though each poem stands by itself uh, that this whole thing then works together in this beautiful poetry and this lamentation before God through their pain and suffering and grief. If you remember the fourth poem, we are coming down the other side of the mountain. We've pictured this book of lamentations like a mountain peak where the third poem, chapter three, is really the, the pinnacle, but that's not the end of the story. There's still pain and grief and suffering even when proclaiming faith in God. and putting one's trust in the faithfulness of God and relying upon His mercy, that there's still the challenges and pain of life. And in the fourth poem... Chapter 4 that we looked at last week, we saw the description of the suffering of the inhabitants of the people of Jerusalem. And you see the uh, prophet just expressing uh, the pain and the grief that has come because the people were unwilling to listen to the prophet. They were unwilling to listen to his message, telling them what was going to happen and how they needed to repent. Rather, they wanted to listen to the false prophets. They wanted to hear that everything was going to be fine and only Jeremiah was giving them the truth that they rejected. And so here the writer of Lamentations then observes that and says that prophets and priests had failed them and they were shedding innocent blood in the streets. And chapter 4 verse 13 spoke of that as well as chapter 4 verse 20 identifies that their kings have let them down. And so prophet Priests, king, all three groups have let down these people who were supposed to lead them in righteousness and teach them in the ways of truth, leading to this finale and really this anticipation of needing the true prophet, the true priest, the true king who would come and lead the people in righteousness and not fail in that task. And we've seen Christ in the book of Lamentations as we're waiting that great Savior who would do that. Now, the fifth poem is unique in a, in a number of ways, particularly that this one is the only one that's not an acrostic. Uh, the first four poems were built into an acrostic form where you were taking the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, completely lost in English translation. You look at your Bible and go, it doesn't look alphabetic to us at all. It's lost in translation, but there's 22 lines, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. But you will notice the form looks like it. You will notice you have 22 lines in the fifth poem in chapter 5. So it gives the appearance 
of an acrostic because there's 22 lines, but it's not an acrostic at all. What it is is then this final poem, and it is a poem of prayer. And as we look at this final poem, I want us to be thinking in the back of our minds as we read it and ask ourselves, what is the author asking God to do? And what is the basis of that request? So I want you to notice, let's just read You could probably stop anywhere. Let's just go to maybe verse 13 or 14 of of chapter 5 and just get a sense of how this one begins. Lamentations 5. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood that we get get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks and we are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword and the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill. The boys stagger under the load of wood. The old men have left the city gate, young men and their music. You just notice how doesn't that sound like all of the other poems in a lot of ways, right? You kind of come to this fifth one and you go, well, hasn't he already said that a bunch of times? In fact, there's a lot of people who uh, will have the tendency to dislike the Lamentations because you read it and go, well, all right already. We know it's miserable. We've got it. Yep, they're dying in the streets. We've read that. We've seen the calamity. You've expressed the pain and the suffering and all of that. And is it really the author's intention to just simply rehearse yet again something that he has already said in all of the other poems so far? And I submit to you that that's not the case at all. In fact, if you'll notice the very first word of verse 1, I believe, really sets the, the tone and the intention of what the author wants when he says, Remember, O Lord. And that's going to be very big to what he's really requesting God to do. When people in the scriptures turn to God and they say, Lord, remember, and then fill in the blank what they're asking God to remember. Nobody is ever asking God to remember because they thought God forgot. Right, you're dealing with God. It's not like you go, oh, he, I, you know, I got busy doing something for this fellow over here, and I totally forgot what was happening over here in, in Jerusalem. My bad. Let me get back to you on that. It's not what you're doing ever in the scriptures when you are calling out to God and say, "Remember." When you call out to God to remember something, it is always to remind God concerning covenant promises, and it's. It's not that you are saying, God, you forgot your covenant. You're saying, remember your covenant. Remember your promises because I want you to act on them. 
You made a promise. You made a covenant. You said you would do something. And I want you to do that. And notice that's really what colors the text. Verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Look at what is happening. Look at what is taking place. And what the author is doing is really driving at God and saying, You made promises to us about what it was going to be when we would be in covenant with you. Verse 2 is the most obvious. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers and our homes to foreigners. Take a step back. What did God promise Abraham and his descendants? This land. Notice the author is saying, look at what has happened. This isn't our inheritance anymore. Strangers have come in and taken it and they've overthrown the place and it's no longer our land. God, remember, remember your covenant, remember your promises. That's the essence of what he's getting at. And I think perhaps even more strongly than the covenant that was made with Abraham, that the author here would be strongly driving at the covenant promises that were made to David. Those are often the covenant promises that people in the Old Testament are resting upon. And they're saying, you made promises to David about this nation. And since you said that, we are asking you to remember those promises and to fulfill them. Listen to what was told to David in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 13. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so David is told your descendant, your son, he's going to sit on that throne and that throne was going to be established forever. Now consider what's happened because there's no one on the throne now. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. There is no more king. Zedekiah has been taken away. They do not rule over their own land. And God had made a promise. This throne would be here forever. God had made a promise to David that the steadfast love of the Lord would not depart even if he commits iniquity. The steadfast love of the Lord would not depart. And so you can hear the author ringing out in this very lamentation. You made promises. Remember what else that he promised. He said, this house. What house is he talking? He's not talking about some guy's house. We're talking about the temple. This house and this kingdom would be sure and established forever. And here is the author going, you said the temple would be sure and established forever. And it's a burn pile of rubble now and our inheritance is gone 
And that's why he goes through all the suffering and where dead people are in the streets and we have no bread and we have no food and we have to go buy water and we have to go buy food from Egypt and Assyria. Look at our suffering. Look and see what has befallen us. The whole point that is being made here by the author is to call upon God to say, look at what has happened and remember those covenant promises. Temple has been destroyed. City has been destroyed. The people are ruined. God, remember your promises. Verse one, look at what has befallen us. See our disgrace. And so in this prayer, he is invoking on the faithfulness of God. Now, did you notice verse seven when we did the reading? Because I think verse seven really stands out to me. That's like the sore thumb of the text. Because he says all of a sudden in verse 7, Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. That almost sounds like what a lot of people were saying in the days of Ezekiel as well. The people were saying, hey, you know, this isn't because we were sitting. Our forefathers were sitting and we're bearing the brunt of their sins. Is that what the author is saying here? I submit to you that that can't be. Because throughout this lamentation, each and every poem has said the reason why we're suffering is because of our own sins. Chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 14, chapter 3, 39, chapter 3, 42, chapter 4, 13. And he'll even say it right here in this very poem. Look at verse 16 of chapter 5. Woe to us, for we have sinned. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to look at verse 7 and say, well, we didn't sin, that was our forefathers, and so this is just unfair. What's the author saying? It sounds like what the author is pointing out when he says, our forefathers sinned and they are no more and we're bearing their iniquities is simply to point out this judgment was long overdue. And we know that when we read the history of Israel, this has been long, long overdue how God has been merciful to Judah. When we studied the Chronicles, we saw an awful lot of wicked kings. And yet we see that God in his mercy, in his patience, in his forbearance, as he waits and waits and waits and does not do something, trying to bring about a repentance, sending more prophets and more messengers to try to bring them back, that he's not taking the blame off of themselves and saying, well, we're not the ones who've sinned. He says we've sinned all the more, but he's pointing out the history. They've all sinned. Sounds very much like what Stephen would say when he would stand up and say, you know what, we've all been sinning. And which of the prophets did we not persecute? You know, here's that's what he's doing right here is he's owning the sin. He's saying that's the way it's been. Even our father sinned and we have bared the iniquities as well. We're all a bunch of sinners and deserve the wrath that has come upon the people. And we see that God has done what he should have done. Which leads to, I think, what makes this fascinating about what he does is he basically just recognizes that the only thing that they have left to do is to cry out for the mercy of God. You see that in verse 16, woe to us for we have sinned. All that we can do is say we've sinned. 
we've ruined ourselves. I've sinned and the previous generation sinned and the generation before that and the generation before that. And so verse 21, all that we can go before God is say, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. The only way that we can come back into your presence and to enjoy the covenant blessings again is not that we can do anything, but that God must restore us to himself. And that's what he says. We are full of sins, generation upon generation. God, restore us to yourself so that we may be restored. We can't restore ourselves to God. God is going to have to do something to bring about the restoration. And so you see a humility and an understanding of sin that he says that we can't just now suddenly try to do better and that's going to make it all better. It's not. We deserve the punishment. But God, you restore us because of your love and your mercy. Very similar to, I think it would be a New Testament parallel when you had the tax collector and the Pharisee. And all the tax collector can possibly say before God is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. As this is all he offers. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Restore us to yourself so that we can be restored. That is a great picture of the heart that God desires. And this is the basis by which he is now approaching God and declaring these things before God. We have sinned and that's all we can say before him. That brings in verse 19. And I think verse 19 really then is the hub of this poem. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us, you remain exceedingly angry with us. Here is his declaration. God still reigns. Here he is in the rubble. He's describing horrible pain. Verse 10, our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. And in the midst of all of that, even though God is gone, temples destroyed, he says, God reigns. God is still reigns. God is still sovereign. God still rules over these events. And how often that is the message that God wants people to rest upon, especially when they are suffering for the cause of Christ. The book of Revelation is so strong with that message. Because you think about how Revelation works, as you see this picture, Revelation opens, once we move past the letters, the picture is God on the throne with all of the heavenly beings. Everybody's bowing down before Him. It is the great God on the throne. And the first thing we're coming out of the throne room scene is we have these saints under the altar crying out, How long? They're being killed for the cause of Christ. Yet the front picture is God's reigning. And then all you should move throughout the book of Revelation. People are suffering. People are dying. It's the great tribulation. They're all going to be killed for the cause of Christ. But what do you see when you move into the final chapters? You come to chapter 19. God's still reigning. Here's Christ on the white horse. He's trampled the blood of the enemies. It's splattered all over His garment. And He is victorious. 
but you're suffering in the midst of God reigning. And that's what the author is doing here in Lamentations. As we are suffering, we are in sin, we are experiencing pain and grief, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't reign. That doesn't mean that God's not in control. That doesn't mean that God is still not ruling. He is absolutely ruling. And that is then the basis by which he can say, so remember those covenant promises. Remember what you've said. That's what verse 20 is. Why do you forget us forever? And why do you forsake us so many days? Again, it's not, why have you forgotten? You didn't forget, forget. But you forgot what you promised us. Restore those promises. That's why the next line is restore us. Bring those promises back. You made covenant promises to us that we can depend upon. And I want you to see that this fifth poem then is giving us a strong basis for prayer. That we have the ability to pray and we have the basis for prayer uh, to push God if you will, I can think of a better word, put that in quotes because I don't like, you know, we don't push God. But you can push God based upon the things that he has said. And that's exemplified through the scriptures all the time. That's what we've come across Abraham. And we're stunned like, okay, here is God sent his, his angels down to see about Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, I'm going to tell Abraham, I'm going to wipe them all out. And Abraham begins to, if you will, argue with God. Well, are you going to destroy the city if there's 50 righteous? What's the basis of that argument? The basis of the argument is, God, you don't destroy the righteous. So how can that possibly be? If there's 50 righteous in the city, are you surely still going to destroy it? He's coming at God on the basis of God's covenant word. God, you made promises, and I know your very character. You wouldn't destroy the righteous for 50, and God goes, you're right. I'm not going to destroy the city if there's 50 righteous. And the whole scene goes on. That's the basis that we have for prayer, to be able to talk to God and to pray in faith using the promises that God has made, using the words that God has said. And think about why the scriptures give us that kind of hope. A few weeks ago, we studied Philippians chapter four, and we read there to not be anxious about anything, but in everything, everything. Let your requests be made known to God. Here is a great promise. You talk to God about anything. And I can use this promise of anything and everything and take those things to God. To take all kinds of scriptures that give us great and precious promises and use them to become the anchor for our faith and to help us in our lives. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a big promise. You know, there's a lot of times I feel like I'm alone. I feel like God's not right there. I have the ability to go before God and press that text to God and say, you said you never leave me or forsake me. I know you're there. I know you're with me through this, but I don't feel that way. I feel isolated. I feel alone. I'm in the dark in my suffering, in my trial, in my difficulty. 
the ability to go before God and press God with that. The very next verse of chapter Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, God said he would be your helper. God, I need a helper right now. You promised you'd be a helper. And so I need help. That's what the author is doing in Lamentations. Is he's just taking the promises of God and saying, you said about this. And so because you said that, I believe those words and I'm asking you to remember those words and to carry out what you said. And so he says, you made all kinds of promises to Abraham and David. Look at us. That's not what you said we were going to be. And so restore us, bring us back to what you promised. And we can use the scriptures like that in the same way. One of the great promises, how about 1 John 1, 7? And if you'll confess your sins, he is faithful and he is righteous to forgive you of all your sins. You can go before God with that promise and go before him in prayer. I am a failure. I have sinned. But you said that you'd forgive me if I confess my sins to you. I can take that promise to God and know that I am forgiven because you said and your word is faithful and you always keep your word. It gives us great hope for everything that we read in the Scriptures. New Testament, Old Testament, that God makes a promise. He keeps His Word. The whole point of God's promises is to give us an anchor for life through difficulty. To give us the anchor we need through pain and grief. To be able to hold on to those promises. That they would be an encouragement to us. And become the anchor for the li- our lives that we need. And so Lamentations 5 teaches us to pray with faith. Depending upon the promises of God to be carried out. To depend on the promises of God to be carried out. I think that's why so many Christians gravitate to the Psalms. That there's such a, an enjoyment in the Psalms because you see the psalmist doing those kinds of things all the time. Is you are resting on the promises of God and holding on to them and saying, God, I know that you vindicate the righteous. And I know that you will judge the wicked. Look at my condition. Look at what is happening to me. God, do something about it because you made a promise about it. And it's giving the author who writes those words hope through that difficulty. And the same is true for us to give us hope through the difficulty. In the final moments, then, what I want to do is I want to just kind of take a step back and kind of we get into the details of Lamentations, just pull back out and just put the five poems together. Because we talked about the beginning of our study, that this was really a journey through pain and grief and how to have faith through those difficulties. And that's what the message of this book is about. And so just to kind of step back and remind ourselves the various messages that were in these poems and how they connect together to give us a strength of faith. First poem, we saw that the author just simply is able to cry to the Lord for comfort, recognizing there's not comfort anywhere else. When you hit the time of difficulty, pain, suffering, grief, there is not going to be the comfort that you need from anyone else but God. We all wish we could comfort one another. We all wish we could do something about it. We wish we could all do something to fix it. But God is the only one who can. And what we saw in that first poem was a a beautiful picture that he's not even at the point to be able to express what he needs. 
He only thing he says in that first poem is, Lord, look and see. That's all he has. And that is the best starting point in suffering, pain, trial, sin, difficulty. Lord, look, see. I, I'm, I don't even know what to tell you what I need, but here's my situation. Look and see what I'm going through right now. <laughs> Second poem, also amazing as it moves forward and goes up the mountain. And you see this picture of you don't have to restrain your emotions to God. He, he, in that second poem, he says, God has put arrows through my back. He has put me through. He has you know, done all of this to me. My grief has overwhelmed me. And, and God has done all of these things. The confidence and ability for us to express what we are feeling, to tell God what we are going through. It's exactly what God wants. Take those things to God. The author does it. He says, here's what's happening. Here's what's going on. Here's what it looks like to me. Here's the pain that I'm in. Here's what's happened in my life. And he just gives it to God and says, here, I lay it at your feet. And the second poem gives us that whatever it is like Philippians four, in everything to be able to take it to God. You have Hebrews four to boldly come before the throne of God, a boldness to do it. Lamentations two shows that boldness to be able just to express it before God. Lamentations three. I have found Lamentations three to be really useful this last month. <laughs> Lamentations 3, you trust in God because God is faithful and because his mercies are renewed to you every day. It's another day for the fresh mercies of God to come into your life. It's another day to get some hope and some breath that you need after some hard, painful times. And here he is in all of this pain, in all of this grief. And he's able to express before God and just simply say, God, you are faithful. Your mercies are new every day. And every day is a new opportunity to receive a refreshing from God who will carry us through whatever the pain is. And so you see the authors express, great is your faithfulness. A total dependence upon God and his character. Fourth poem. We see the author then reflecting on his pain now, the attempt to learn from what has happened. He now becomes introspective and recognizes it's time to learn from this difficulty, learn from this pain. And that's what we see the New Testament telling us where James 1 says you're able to count these things as joy. That First Peter 1 tells us that these things are being given to us so that we can be refined by fire so that that faith would become purified. And so we go through these things and as we move through pain and suffering and grief, we come to a point where we're able to learn from these things. How can I change for the Lord? What is God teaching me? Where can I improve? How does God want me to be a better servant? How can this be used in my life to show the glory of God to the world, to expand the borders of the kingdom? How can my pain and my suffering be used for God's glory? He steps back and is doing that, is able to identify the problems of why he's in the position he's in, reflecting on the difficulty. And then the fifth one that we've looked at tonight, to be able to then to pray for restoration, to be able to take our words to God and recognize God keeps his word 
And that's what gets us through to the other side. To hold on to the promises of God through the darkest of times and the greatest of difficulties. That God keeps His promises. God keeps His word. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He will be your helper. He will guide you through. He will give you the strength that you need. All of those promises, you just read those in your scriptures. In fact, it gives us encouragement to read the scriptures. When you know that you will find one of those promises and you get your highlighter and colored pencils out and go, He made a promise right there and that's going to help me through today. That He said He'd help me. That He said He'd be there. That He'd never walk away. Hold on to those promises that we, that we have. And to see Christ really as the ultimate fulfillment then of all of those precious promises, that everything about Christ is the fulfillment of what we truly need, that our greatest need is what Christ has accomplished for us, that no matter what we go through, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how painful it is, no matter how much we lose, it can all be taken away and we still have the greatest joy and the greatest hope and the greatest comfort because we know that we have Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul is expressing there in Philippians, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, that as long as I have Christ, I will count everything else as trash so that I can be with Him and I can know Him. So no matter what happens, we have these promises that we rest upon and say, God, You're with me, and that's where I want to be, is with You. And that's how Lamentations moves through this flow of faith. In great pain and in great suffering and great difficulty. I hope that's helped you at least half as much as it's helped me in studying these words. You pull your songbooks out, we'll sing an invitation song.